Last time on the Where's That Sound Coming From podcast. Running from the Grand Ennui. Running from the Grand Ennui. Running from the Grand Ennui. Chunk a pound of drum break to one, two. Running from the Grand Ennui. Welcome to the Where's That Sound Coming From podcast. My name is Brian, and I'm so happy that you showed up. This is episode 21, and for those of you wondering when I'd return to the original format, or return at all, well, you'll be glad to know that not only am I back, obviously, but that this episode will indeed be a return to form. Before I go any further, have you subscribed to this podcast? You can do so either through iTunes or through Podomatic.com, which hosts this podcast. One more question. Are you on Facebook? If so, search for the Where's That Sound Coming From podcast to see photos of all the artists featured on each episode. And if you're so inclined, and if you haven't already, you can like the podcast. I haven't done much, if anything, to hype the podcast during this hiatus, so... I think my likes have been lingering around the same number for the past year. It'd be great to earn some new fans, though. I know that there are more geeks out there like me. And lastly, just to get this out of the way, and because I don't always remember to mention this, I do not own the copyright of any of the songs that I play in this podcast, nor did I write or perform any of them, with the exception of the theme song. And you may have noticed that I used an old theme song for this episode. It's shorter. It also doesn't feature my late, beloved kitty cat meowing in the background, but she lives on in the past ten or so intros. So, all that out of the way, let's get this show on the road. I apologize ahead of time if the furnace kicks in in the middle of my talking. As I'm recording this, it's early December here in New England, and we're right in the middle of the darkest days of the year. If you have a job that lets out around 5 p.m., You're now driving or walking or bussing home in the dark. The dark becomes more prevalent just as the merriment of the holidays is foisted upon us. I'm not the hugest fan of the holidays, though now that I have a kid, I can observe it through her eyes and it's a happier thing. New Year's Eve is always fun because I usually have a show or two to play with one or more of the bands that I'm in. This year, the Fawns, that's F-A-W-N-S, will once again be playing. I never talk about my musical life here, and I won't make it a habit. But for starters, if you're interested, 
you can go to rubwrongways.com, that's R-U-B-W-R-O-N-G-W-A-Y-S.com, and you'll find a few of the bands that I play with, including my own solo project, Sitting Next to Brian, which is another thing I've been struggling to get back off the ground since becoming a dad. Oh well, soon. But I was in the middle of talking about winter, so if you live where I live, after New Year's Eve, all you have to look forward to is bleak winter for the next 90 days. So that answers the question, are you a fan of winter sports, Brian? No, I'm not. Winter is a difficult time for many folks, and I, for one, often find solace in music of a bleaker nature. Even if everything in my life is going great, I just need to compliment the bare trees and biting wind with an appropriate soundtrack. The song featured in this episode is nothing if not bleak, and the backdrop is indeed a cold, dark night. And that song is... The Long Black Veil. A song that's attracted a veritable who's who of artists. And as one artist says in his intro to the song that you'll hear later on, it's also a song that contains both murder and a bizarre sense of fidelity. The song was written by Mary John Wilkin and Danny Dill, both of whom wrote lots of songs for lots of artists, but this one is perhaps the most successful for each of them across both time and genres. Written in the late 1950s, when folk music was still enjoying its moment of mainstream popularity, Dill proclaimed it, quote, an instant folk song. That definitely seems a bit of a crass and cynical statement, especially in the age where the word instant was synonymous with the new, fast, dehumanizing pace of modern life in post-war America. Think instant mashed potatoes, for example, or instant coffee while folk music celebrated all that connected us as humans on one planet. Still, a good song is a good song, and judging from the list of artists who've chosen to cover this one, Wilkin and Dill achieved their goal, and indeed wrote an instant classic. And in the versions to come, you'll hear one artist, at that point a folk purist, almost apologizing for doing something contemporary. Meanwhile, you'll hear another artist, decades later, refer to the song as an old traditional, which is surprising since that artist was surely aware when this song was first popular. In fact, said artist soon realized that he had misspoke, and in another version, recorded later on on the same tour, corrected himself when introducing the song. Anyway, let's hear the original version recorded by country artist Lefty Frizzell in March of 1959 and released the following month on Columbia Records. The song was produced by legendary country music mogul Don Law and features co-writer Mary John Wilkin playing the piano. Ten years ago On a cold, dark night There was some one killed neath the town hall light There were few at the scene But they all agreed That the slayer who ran Looked a lot like me The judge said, son What is your alibi? If you were somewhere else Then you won't have to die 
I spoke not a word Though it made my life For I had been in the arms Of my best friend's wife She walks these hills In a long black veil She visits my grave When the night winds well Nobody knows Nobody sees Nobody knows But me The sky falls high And eternity near She stood in the crowd and shed not a tear but sometimes at night when the cold wind moans in a long black veil she cries o'er my bones she walks these hills in a long Like veil, she visits my grave when the night winds well. Nobody knows, nobody sees, nobody knows but me. Lefty Frizzell's version of Long Black Veil went to number six on the country charts, though it has just as much in common with folk music as it does country in its arrangement, especially compared to Lefty's previous and future singles. But nevertheless, it stopped a five-year drought for him. He hadn't charted a single since 1954's I Love You Mostly. So let's go over the lyrics a bit, though they don't really need much explaining as much as they do discussion. We realize by the first chorus that this song is being sung by a dead man. Thus, its appeal, though not targeted at a teenage audience, is the same as those songs like Dead Man's Curve or Patches or Lori, Strange Things Happen, where the listener gets chills just thinking about how this song is being sung from the beyond. However, there are other country tunes like uh, Marty Robbins' El Paso, which also feature the singer describing his own death. But Long Black Veil really pulls in listeners not just because of the death angle, but because of what led up to his death. The singer commits adultery, but doesn't die at the hand of his best friend, whose wife he slept with, but dies because of a tragic coincidence that puts him in a predicament that he can't find a way out of. So he's accused of one crime, murder, which only he and his lover, his best friend's wife, know that he did not commit. But he's silent when the judge asks for his defense. Why? He'd rather be put to death for a murder that he didn't commit than face the maelstrom that would happen if he admitted to his best friend that he'd been sleeping with his wife. As great as the song is, in my opinion, there's really nothing noble about what the guy does. 
In fact, he's a bit of a selfish coward, in my opinion, for opting to die, rather than try and work things out with his lover and his best friend. It would in fact be a lot harder to deal with the fallout of his friend finding out one way or another, if either he confessed or if the wife, distraught at being in the middle of all this, blurted out the truth, either at the trial or at the hanging. But no, both he and she spoke not a word. Though he is sentenced to death, he also gets to avoid all confrontation. He's pretty much throwing his lover under the bus because there's a good chance that in the aftermath, her husband will learn the truth one way or another, and then it's anybody's guess what happens. Oh, on top of all that, confessing to a crime that he didn't commit means that there's still a murderer at large, but no one in the town knows this. The singer gets the satisfaction of being visited by the woman in her long black veil and hearing her cry over their forbidden actions. But these tears could just as easily be tears of rage, thanks to Bob Dylan, since she's the one who has to continue to live her life after all this. We'll hear a couple of versions of this song sung from the woman's perspective, but I wonder if anyone's ever written a sequel from her point of view. The singer will always remain young and, we might assume, handsome in her memory, while she and her husband that she cheated on, assuming that they're still together, just get older and, one might assume, they probably have a hard road ahead. And, unless he's a very kind and understanding soul, she's got to take that secret to her own grave. I'm taking a somewhat cynical view of this story, whereas the reason why so many great artists have been drawn to it is because it's also a great romantic outlaw martyr story. It's nice to think that you'll be remembered and mourned after death because you committed a crime of the heart and did away with any logic or morality, which is really the mindset one must take if one wants to write popular songs. Morals kind of have no place in popular music when you think about it. So let's now hear some other artists who wanted to bask in a romantic moral-free zone. Where is that, Where sound, is that coming sound coming from? from? The first notable cover version of this song comes from San Francisco folk legends the Kingston Trio, who covered it on their 10th studio album. Mind you, that's in a four-year period, titled New Frontier. So, the fact that these folk giants were covering Long Black Veil pretty much justified the songwriter's boast that this was an instant folk song. New Frontier was released in late 1962 during the peak of the optimism of the Kennedy presidency, and the title track was written by band member John Stewart. Now, just for trivia's sake, do you all know who John Stewart was? And no, I don't mean former host of The Daily Show, John Stewart. Well, his career really had a few major chapters all about 10 years apart. First came success with the Kingston Trio, which peaked in the early 60s. In 1968, after the Kingstons had broken up, he wrote the biggest song of his career, which you might recognize. After several solo albums, he struck gold, haha, again, with the song Gold from his 1979 album Bombs Away, Dream Babies, which was helped by a prominent backing vocal by Stevie Nicks. One last little bit of trivia regarding Jon Stewart. 
In April of 1974, he was on the bill at the legendary Zigzag concert, which took place at the Roundhouse in London. This was a show put on by the hit music magazine Zigzag and was headlined by none other than Michael Nesmith, who played one of the best shows of his career with just him on guitar and Red Rhodes on pedal steel. Also on the bill was John Stewart. Also on the bill was a band called Chili Willy and the Red Hot Peppers, uh, sort of a pub rock, uh, country-leaning British band, who had on drums a young man named Pete Thomas. And Pete Thomas stepped up when John Stewart needed a last-minute drummer, and this resulted in Pete being hired by Stewart and relocating from the UK to Northern California. He might have stayed there forever, playing in bar bands, and had he not received a phone call from London that a new artist named Elvis Costello needed a band ASAP, and his label thought that Pete was the perfect man for the job. Almost 40 years later, Pete Thomas is still Elvis Costello's go-to drummer, and in my opinion, one of the best pop and rock drummers in history. Anyway, now I'm several degrees away from the subject at hand. But aren't you glad you know all this stuff now? So back to the Kingston Trio. Their album New Frontier also included a cover of Ewan McCall's The First Time Ever I Saw Your Face. Remember Ewan McCall from the Dirty Old Town episode of this podcast? As well as the single Greenback Dollar, co-written by Hoyt Axton. And finally, their cover of Long Black Veil. Someone killed beneath the town hall line. There were few at the scene, but they all agreed that the slayer who ran looked a lot like me. Nobody knows, nobody sees, nobody knows but me. The judge said, son, what is your alibi? If you were somewhere else, then you won't have to die. I spoke not a word, though it meant my life. For I'd been in the arms of my best friend's wife. She walks these hills in a long black veil. She visits my grave where the night wind Nobody knows, nobody sees, nobody knows but me. The scaffold was high and eternity knew. She stood in the crowd and shed not a tear. But sometimes at night when the cold wind moans in a long black veil, she cries on oh my bones She walks these hills in a long black veil She visits my grave where the night winds wail Nobody knows, nobody sees Nobody knows but me Nobody knows but me 
but me. So the Kingston Trio were folkies out of San Francisco who covered Long Black Veil in 1962. Next up, we have a recording of another San Francisco folkie doing this song in 1963, though this guy wouldn't find his star until he went electric a couple years later. Jerry Garcia was a San Francisco native born to a Spanish father and an Irish mother. His youth was filled with tragedies from which he found refuge in art, films, and music. At the age of four, Jerry had most of his right middle finger accidentally chopped off when he was helping his older brother, Tiff, chop wood. The following year, during a family vacation, Jerry's father died when he slipped on a rock while fly fishing and was swept away in the rapids of the Trinity River in Northern California. Having to make ends meet by herself, Jerry's mother, Ruth, took over her late husband's bar and sent Jerry and his brother to live with their grandparents. Jerry started playing the guitar at 15, which was also the year that he discovered his lifelong friends, marijuana and tobacco. For the rest of his teens, as his family moved from place to place, he played guitar in bands, but at that point in his life was more interested in painting and general rabble-rousing. In 1960, as punishment for stealing his mother's car, she ordered him to join the army to get his act together. Predictably, he didn't last long and was given discharge after one too many AWOLs. He was now away from home and hanging around the last of the San Francisco beatnik scene, sleeping on couches, more or less directionless. A wake-up call came when he and some friends were taking a late-night drive and took a sharp corner at high speed. The car crashed and rolled several times. Jerry was thrown through the windshield and emerged with a couple of broken bones and cuts and bruises. The driver and another passenger were also thrown from the car but survived. However, a 16-year-old promising artist named Paul Spiegel died in the accident. Throughout his life, Garcia would often say that that was the point at which he decided to start taking life seriously. This is when he began fully immersing himself in the folk scene, spending most of his waking hours practicing music and becoming known as the hottest banjo player in town. Around this time, he met a young recording engineer at the Berkeley radio station KPFA named Phil Lesh, who had Garcia play live on his radio show. He had also met Sarah Ruppenthal, who would become his first wife and the mother of his first child, as well as his partner in a folk duo. They married in April 1963 and performed a few coffeehouse gigs after that. Thankfully, we have some fairly good recordings of a couple of their shows. In this recording, you'll hear Garcia, diplomatic as always, apologetically yet somewhat defensively telling the coffeehouse audience that Long Black Veil isn't a folk song, but it's a good song nonetheless. This reminds me of the interview from a few years later, where he tells a, a snobbish interviewer who's bashing the monkeys that, hey, the monkeys have some good songs, why shouldn't they be number one? In other words, good is good, no matter if it's old or new, organic or prefabricated. Or perhaps instant would be a better word. And you have to admit, sometimes a cup of instant coffee is just as good as a $6 cup of cold-brewed organic Kenyan double-A. Anyway, here is a young, goateed Jerry Garcia and his then-new bride Sarah performing Long Black Veil, recorded on May 4th, 1963, at the 
Top of the Tangent Club in Palo Alto, California. Enjoy. We had a request, or at least I did, or both of us did actually, but that sort of came to me indirectly. Had a request this after this last set to do a song called Long Black Veil, which is a uh, modern country song, and uh, but but it's pretty anyway. Even at that, it's not even a folk song or anything. It's just a song. It's, somebody wrote it, and, and it's, it's on records and with electric guitars and everything. But anyway, it's a good song. It's called The Long Black Veil. Everybody have that now? This is called Tuning. Say 
And the furnace has kicked back on, so apologies if that's distracting. So that Jerry and Sarah version was never officially released, but has been kicking around the, the bootleg scene for a while, and I'm pretty sure you can still hear it on YouTube. But the next commercially released version of Long Black Veil comes from a guy who just may be in the top five artists who have covered all the songs. And that would be Johnny Rivers. Johnny Rivers, born Johnny Ramistella in New York City, was largely raised in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Legendary DJ Alan Freed suggested the name Johnny Rivers when the youngster met him while on a trip to New York City. Throughout the late 50s into the early 60s, Rivers toured around with his band, developing a crowd-pleasing style that was rock and roll, but not edgy or offensive. Very crowd-pleasing type of guy. Prior to his big breakthrough album, 1964's Live at the Whiskey A Go-Go, a club that he was asked to open and became the house entertainment, Rivers released many singles that failed to chart. And one of these was 1962's recording of Long Black Veil, which sank without a trace, but which was then released on a compilation of these early singles called The Sensational Johnny Rivers, which came out on Capitol Records in late 1964. It's a cool arrangement, however, and may well be the most rock and roll of all the versions. Dig it. Ten years ago, on a cold, dark night, there was someone killed beneath the town hall light. They were few at the scene, but they all agreed that the slayer who ran looked a lot like me. Well, a judge said, son, what is your Somewhere else Nothing that you won't have to die Well I spoke Not a word Though it meant my life For I had been In the arms Of my best friend's wife She walks these hills In a long black veil She visits my grave when the night winds wail Nobody knows, good Lord, nobody sees Nobody knows other than me Well, the sky goes high And eternity's near She stood in the crowd And shed not a tear But sometimes at night when the cold wind moans in a long black veil, she cries all night long. She walks these hills in a long black veil. She lives, it's my grave when the night winds wail. Nobody knows, good Lord, nobody sees. Nobody knows. 
first time this song appeared on a Johnny Cash album. The year was 1965, and the album was Orange Blossom Special, which was recorded in late 1964 and released in February of 65, a year that saw the first in a series of Johnny Cash's Falls from Grace. In June of 65, he was arrested and ordered to pay the U.S. government for his truck catching on fire, which in turn started a forest fire that burned 500 acres and killed 49 endangered condors in Los Padres National Forest near Santa Barbara, California. In October of that year, Cash's true demons became public knowledge when he was arrested while waiting for a flight from El Paso to Los Angeles to take off. Stuffed inside of some socks inside of a guitar case were roughly 700 dexedrine pills, that's an amphetamine, and roughly 500 Equinil pills. Equinil being the generic name for Milltown, which was a very popular tranquilizer before Valium hit the market. With all the biographies that have appeared since his death, we now know that, while legal, both of these drugs are highly addictive, and for cash to be taking them in such mass quantities points to a man with a couple of alarmingly major addictions. Still, it wasn't until 1967 when he hit rock bottom and more or less left the drugs behind him, though since his death it's been said by friends and family that they were never completely out of his life. They were just consumed in more human doses. In any case, it's safe to say that Cash was most likely pretty pilled up at the time of recording Orange Blossom Special. Despite this, he was open to new sounds and was quite taken by a guy named Bob Dylan, who likewise admired and became lifelong friends with Cash. The Orange Blossom Special LP was made up of two Cash originals, a handful of traditionals like Danny Boy, three Bob Dylan songs, Mama, You've Been On My Mind, Don't Think Twice, It's Alright, and It Ain't Me, Babe, and his cover of Long Black Veil. Now, I know a lot of people think that Cash's version is the definitive version, but I'm going to say one thing about it that bugs the arranger in me. I don't like that he goes to the chorus before the second verse. Why? Because the first verse flows into the second verse so well Plus, the first verse doesn't make any mention of any woman, and so for the chorus to start, she walks these hills after only the first verse. Someone new to the song might think, she? Who's, who's she? Whereas the second verse ends with the phrase, my best friend's wife, and thus the cast of characters is complete, and the chorus makes sense after that. And now I'll pause for 10 seconds so you can shout shut the up it's Johnny Cash I'm sure that's what Johnny would have told me to do ten years ago on a cold dark night Someone was killed neath the town hall lights There were few at the scene But they all agreed That the slayer who ran Looked a lot like me She walks these hills In a long black veil She 
what? Remember how I wondered in the intro about any follow-up songs? Well, one of the co-writers of Long Black Veil, Mara John Wilkin, did in fact write an answer song and released it in 1961. It's called My Long Black Veil, and despite being the co-writer of the song, her answer didn't get too much attention. So I'm doing it now. What do we learn from the woman's side? We learn that it was just one stolen night, not an ongoing affair. We also learn that she shed not a tear, not because of any vengeful feelings or stony apathy, but that she was keeping it inside, in fact crying unseen tears. Otherwise the song just holds a mirror up to the original. Still, those couple little details do fill in some blanks. We also know that she's managed to keep the affair a secret and has presumably carried on life with her husband. But on cold, dark, windy nights, she allows herself to remember this man who died for her. Ten years ago, on a cold, dark night, there was someone Neath the town hall light The few at the scene Were wrong as could be Cause the man they accused That night was with me But what 
stolen night he just had to pay he couldn't tell a soul that I was out with him for the whole town knew I belong to his best friend now I walk these hills in my long black veil I visit his grave when the night winds wave sees nobody knows but me the scaffold was high I knew his death was near I stood in the crowd and shed unseen tears but sometimes at night when the cold wind moans in my long black veil I weep o'er his bones I walk these hills in my long black veil I visit his grave when the night And now, one of the coolest versions from an album that changed a whole lot of musicians' lives and outlook. This comes from the first album by The Band, released in 1968, called Music from Big Pink. Little side note, have you ever read the 1968 Rolling Stone interview with Pete Townsend? I was reading that recently, and he refers to a band called Big Pink, but is obviously talking about the band whose album music from Big Pink had just been released. It's just that the album doesn't really make clear what the name of the band or the album is, and I'm sure Townsend was not alone in his misconception. It's just it's just funny to read. Anyway, you probably know the basic story of the band. Canadian boys, with the exception of Arkansas native Levon Helm, who from the late 50s to the mid-60s were called the Hawks and played roadhouse-type places backing up blues and rockabilly singer Ronnie Hawkins, around the US and Canada. They spent about five years as his backup band until they felt that they had outgrown that style and wanted to branch out on their own, find their own style. Around this time, Bob Dylan had gone electric and was in search of a band. While he was touring in Toronto, a mutual friend advised Dylan to go see the Hawks play at a club. Dylan was impressed and soon asked some of the Hawks, namely Robbie Robertson and LeVon Helm, to join his touring band. But they replied, it's all of us or nothing. So he took all the Hawks on the road 
with him as his band. This was, of course, when Dylan was routinely getting booed whenever he brought on his band and switched over to electric guitar. LeVon Helm hated the booing so much that he quit touring after a month and went to work on an oil rig. While the rest of his bandmates were, yes, getting booed nightly, but otherwise enjoying all the perks of the rock and roll life, touring the world for the next year with the overworked and increasingly drug-dependent Dylan. After Dylan's motorcycle accident in late 1966, which uh, many say wasn't as bad as commonly believed, but which he used as a convenient excuse to get off the road, get off the harder drugs, and spend time with his wife and babies, he called the Hawks to come and help him get back in the musical swing of things. Throughout the spring and summer of 1967, while the rest of the pop world was bathed in lysergic day glow, Dylan and his band, which was now becoming known as The Band, holed up in a few small rooms in Woodstock, New York, with an old two-track recorder and a couple of mics. For the first few weeks, they messed around with a seemingly bottomless well of old folk songs like Going Down the Road Feeling Bad and Bells of Rimney, newer folk and pop songs like If I Was a Carpenter, People Get Ready, and The French Girl, some Johnny Cash, some Elvis Presley, and even some old Dylan songs like Blowing in the Wind and One Too Many Mornings, among countless others. Eventually, Dylan started bringing in some brand new songs, which were written purely to be sold to other artists, yet which rank as some of his best ever. Tears of Rage, You Ain't Going Nowhere, I Shall Be Released, The Mighty Quinn, This Wheel's on Fire. And then there were some seemingly off-the-cuff goofy and stoned workouts like Lo and Behold, E Heavy and a Bottle of Bread, and Please Mrs. Henry. I personally love this batch of Dylan songs possibly more than any other, just because of the timeless, parallel universe they inhabit. Anyway, both the touring of 65 and 66 and the woodshedding of 67 gave the members of the band a priceless education on songwriting, and soon Robbie Robertson, and to a lesser extent the rest of the band, were all churning out classic original songs. By 1968, they had gotten signed by Capitol Records and released their earth-shaking debut, Music from Big Pink. Now, from a modern perspective, it's difficult to hear this album and have your mind as blown. I know it took me several listens and some historical context to really get it. But basically, if you can imagine the rock world on a year-long psychedelic bender, by early 1968, folks either were going to completely lose their grip on reality, not to mention go out of fashion, or they were going to have to find their way back to Earth. Music from Big Pink was the comforting soundtrack to thousands of trippers coming down at 2 a.m. who just needed a nice cup of coffee and maybe a joint or a shot of bourbon while staring into a fire. Music from Big Pink contained several originals, but also three of the newer Dylan songs, This Wheel's on Fire, Tears of Rage, and I Shall Be Released, as well as the band's version of Long Black Veil, which is done in a great modern rock style. Before LeVon Helm passed away, Donald Fagan of Steely Dan played a few shows with them, which to me seemed like an odd pairing. But when I hear this version of Long Black Veil and think of, say, Steely Dan's dirty work from their first album, Can't Buy a Thrill, which was named after a Dylan lyric, Can't buy a thrill. I can definitely see 
that the young Fagin was listening and being influenced by music from Big Pink. Anyway, here's the version of Long Black Veil that arguably brought it to the rock world. The next version isn't necessarily groundbreaking or essential in the scheme of things. In fact, it seems basically to be a copy of the band's arrangement, but I'm including it just because I love this band. The Move hailed from Birmingham, England, and first made a name for themselves at the end of 1966 when their first single, Night of Fear, made it to number two in the UK charts. Over the next six years, they scored eight more top 20 hits in the UK, with six of those reaching the top 10. The move were a bit like the Who or the Kinks during their peak in that there was a cute, almost bubblegum flavor to their singles, such as Fire Brigade, Here We Go Round the Lemon Tree, and I Can Hear the Grass Grow, but in fact their lyrics often contained dark or risque images, and they were quite keen on causing trouble at their shows and 
were well respected by the hippest in the UK pop scene. Oddly enough, the mastermind behind most of their craziest and riskiest publicity stunts was a guy named Tony Secunda, who also managed the Moody Blues. Perhaps he had trouble getting the Moody's to stop being so serious, so he used the move for all his wildest ideas. Like what, you ask? Say, destroying televisions on stage, or designing an ad for a single which portrayed then-Prime Minister Harold Wilson in bed with his secretary, a move that lost the move considerable royalties on a single that made it to number two, Flowers in the Rain. Perhaps the peak of the move's performing career was when they were on a package tour in late 1967 with the Jimi Hendrix Experience and the Pink Floyd. This tour seems amazing on paper, but in fact it was the first in which Sid Barrett's rapid mental decline was witnessed by his peers as well as large audiences. Even the spaced-out mind of Jimi Hendrix couldn't reach Sid, who was mixing in large quantities of Mandrax, or Quaalude, in with his LSD, making singing and playing, let alone functioning in society, pretty much impossible. Anyway, though the move could boast dozens of top-notch original songs, they were quite fond of cover versions. From hip West Coast covers like Love's Stephanie Knows Who and Moby Grape's Hey Grandma, to a prodding cover of Tom Paxton's The Last Thing on My Mind, a song which may or may not be featured on this podcast in the future. On their BBC sessions, they covered Bonnie Dobson's Morning Dew in a style exactly like Tim Rose, and, as I mentioned, for this BBC session, recorded on September 4th, 1968, they covered Long Black Veil, sticking as close to the band's arrangement as possible. For a band with so many original ideas, it seems bizarre, like some wedding band or fake K-Tel band. It's a bit sad that, despite covering songs by hip California bands and covering folk songs in the style of American artists, the move never broke in the U.S., and in fact, their only U.S. tour in 1969 was halted after only a few dates because their label in the U.S. neither promoted the appearances or even arranged for travel and lodging. Despite this, one of their only U.S. shows at the Fillmore West in San Francisco was recorded and finally released in 2011. In preparation for the U.S. rock audience circa 1969, they even extended half a dozen of their songs to over 10 minutes. Alas, it was all for naught, and these days, in the U.S. at least, if the move were mentioned, it's usually for the fact that they morphed into ELO in 1972. Jeff Lynne having joined the move in 1970, not very long before they split up. But I think it would serve any fan of 60s pop to pick up or download at least a singles collection by the move. You'll wonder where they've been all your life. Mighty music coming up from those lovable lads, the move, so let's groove to the strains of Long Black Veil. Oh 
that sound coming from? Next up is a haunting version by Marianne Faithful, which was recorded in 1971, but not released until 1985. A little bit of background. In 1968, by which time Faithful had mostly shed her image as a posh singer and model, and was firmly entrenched in the sex and drug world of her boyfriend Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones, went into the studio and, with Jagger producing, recorded a single that consisted of a rhythmically challenging song called Something Better, written by real building giants Jerry Goffin and Barry Mann, and which Faithful performed on the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, as well as a song co-written by Faithful uh, with Jagger and Keith Richards called Sister Morphine. The single went nowhere, no doubt because of the overt, druggy nature of the B-side, which wasn't helped by the fact that Jagger, Richards, Faithful, and especially Brian Jones had all recently been in trouble with the law due to drug offenses. By 1971, Jagger and Faithful had split up, and she was largely frozen out of the Stones family. Coinciding with her song Sister Morphine being released on the Rolling Stones' huge-selling Sticky Fingers LP, Faithful had begun a descent into major heroin addiction, living the life of a junkie on London streets. In truly heartless fashion, Jagger and Richard stripped Faithful's name off of the songwriting credits of Sister Morphine, and thus she saw no royalties for it. This gross injustice was righted in the 1990s when Sticky Fingers was reissued on CD. In any case, in 1971, a fellow named Mike Leander, a producer and arranger for Decca Records who had worked with Faithful on her 60s recordings, heard about her tragic state and set out to produce a new album to reintroduce Marianne as a hip songstress for the new decade. He put together a rather loose, stoner-sounding band and compiled... I assume with Faithful's input, a list of songs for her to sing, including three Bob Dylan songs, as well as songs by George Harrison, Tim Harden, Cat Stevens, Sandy Denny, and James Taylor. The resulting album was given the title Masks, that's with a Q-U-E-S at the end, but after seeming to secure a release with Bell Records, the label decided to shelve the release, possibly after seeing that Faithful was so heavily in the grips of her heroin addiction. Except for a couple of appearances in the mid-1970s with David Bowie, Faithful didn't truly emerge from her dark period until the release of 1979's critically acclaimed progressive pop record Broken English, by which time Rough Living had accelerated the aging process and she sounded and looked much older than her 32 years. But this new Faithful, weathered and wizened by time and circumstance, was accepted by a whole new audience that had little to do with her former status as a pop star girlfriend or model. Masks was retitled Rich Girl Blues for its belated release in 1985 and still sounds great. What makes these songs compelling is that you can hear that Faithful's voice has all but lost its former innocent quality and has begun to give way to that of a hardened character. This gives her account of Long Black Veil extra gravity. Ago, on a cold, dark night There was someone killed Neath the town hall line There were few at the scene But they all did 
Next up comes a version recorded in 1972 by Bay Area country rockers New Riders of the Purple Sage. The New Riders were led by two guys named David Nelson and John Marmaduke Dawson. Nelson and Dawson were part of the same folk and bluegrass scene as Jerry Garcia, as well as future dead lyricist Robert Hunter, and they all played the coffeehouse scene in various formations in the early 1960s. Fast forward to 1969, and Garcia and the Dead are at the height of their psychedelic, heavy, progressive freakout period. But looking for new paths to explore, the ever-restless Garcia began playing informally, though separately, with his old pals Dawson and Nelson, revisiting and updating their early folk, bluegrass, and country favorites. The country vibe hung heavily in the air at the time as the band, the Birds, Flying Burrito Brothers, Michael Nesmith, the Bo Brummels, and Bob Dylan, among others, were all doing the the back-to-the-roots thing. Garcia bought a pedal steel guitar and obsessively practiced, developing an unorthodox but impressive style within a few months. John Dawson had been writing songs that paired the down-home sound with the psychedelic mindset, as many of his country rock contemporaries were doing, and so it only made sense to get a band together and record them. Christened the New Riders of the Purple Sage, the group's initial lineup consisted of Nelson and Dawson, with Dave Torbert on bass, Garcia on pedal steel, and the Dead's Mickey Hart on drums. 
This lineup toured heavily with the Dead in 1970, exposing them to an instant and receptive fan base. Between the two bands, Garcia would end up being on stage and playing for about five hours on most of these nights. Around this time, the Dead were recording their breakthrough album, American Beauty, and for his classic album opener, Box of Rain, its composer, Dead bassist Phil Lesh, asked that David Nelson play lead guitar and Dave Torbert play bass, while Lesh played acoustic guitar and Garcia played piano, thus giving the song a kinda dead, kinda not quite dead sound. By the end of 1970, unable to be in two touring bands at once, Garcia readily handed over the pedal steel chair to Canadian pedal steel whiz Buddy Cage, whom both bands had met during the famous Festival Express tour of Canada in 1970, when Cage was playing in Ian and Sylvia's Great Speckled Bird. Partially due to the shock of his father, Lenny Hart, embezzling and absconding with thousands of dollars of the dead's earnings, Mickey Hart was succumbing to depression and addiction, and was never a good country drummer to begin with, so he too left the New Riders, and was replaced by former Jefferson Airplane drummer Spencer Dryden. The New Riders were signed to Columbia Records, for whom they released several albums throughout the 70s, largely appealing to deadheads and the freakier fringes of the country rock crowd. Their version of Long Black Veil was recorded for their third album, 1972's Gypsy Angel. Yikes. Two of the most overused words in classic rock occupying the same title. While they had by then largely severed their reputation as a Grateful Dead offshoot, this track does happen to feature dead vocalist Donna Jean Godshow on backing vocals. Ten years ago on a cold dark night someone was killed neath the town of life there were Yeah. 
Next comes a pretty bizarre version recorded by Sammy Smith, one of the few women associated with the so-called outlaw country movement of the early to mid-70s, which was led by established country artists who found that they'd rather be on the side of the open-minded, anti-war, hippie counterculture than that of the racist Christian conservatives that represented a good percentage of country artists and fans. The main players in the outlaw movement were folks like Waylon Jennings, Willie Nelson, Merle Haggard, and Johnny Cash, who on one hand hoped to enlighten their more narrow-minded fans and cohorts, but failing that, were happy to no longer be associated with them. Sammy Smith's version of Long Black Veil appeared on her sixth album, entitled Sunshine, released in 1975. The album failed to chart, but the single reached number 26 on the country charts. Now what makes this version so bizarre is also what probably made it a hit. Not only is it a cover of a well-known song, but it inexplicably incorporates both the Battle Hymn of the Republic as well as the Lord's Prayer into the track. Bear in mind this is a song about murder and infidelity. I haven't done enough research on this, but to me this seems like a rather cynical grab at appealing to a huge demographic of the country music market conceived by the drug-fueled minds that drove the outlaw country music scene. It brings to mind the dichotomous world portrayed in Robert Altman's film Nashville. Perhaps they were just seeing what the Christian conservatives would go for as long as a flag and a Bible were attached to it. That's just my guess anyway. Politicians on both sides have sure used and continue to use similar tactics. Ten years ago, on a cold, dark night, someone was killed neath the town hall light. There were a few at the scene, but they all agreed that the slayer Stand there with me 
Oddly enough, the biblical theme continues, sort of, with this next one. Not a whole lot of noteworthy versions of Long Black Veil were recorded after the mid-70s until the one recorded by the legendary Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds on their 1986 album Kicking Against the Pricks. While that title sounds very punk rock, and I'm sure that was part of its appeal, I've only recently learned that it's actually a paraphrase of something spoken by Jesus in the New Testament. But further research shows that the phrase, to kick against the pricks, originally comes from a Greek proverb having to do with oxen, who, in attempting to resist the sharp prods of their drivers, end up making things more painful due to the design of the prod. So it's basically saying that, in attempting to cleverly escape a tough situation, we often make things more painful for ourselves. Yep. I'm sure we've all been there on one or more occasions. Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds evolved out of the Australian post-punk band The Birthday Party and are still very much active today. In fact, their most recent album is amazing. 
But Kicking Against the Pricks was the third Bad Seeds album, and interestingly, consists of all cover versions. I say interestingly because the all covers album often occurs much further into a recording artist's career, especially if that artist is a prolific writer of original material, but has found that the creative well has temporarily run dry. If in 1986 Nick Cave was indeed out of ideas, he needn't have worried too much. 31 years later, he has dozens more impressive albums to his name, not just with the Bad Seeds, but side projects as well as film scores, not to mention novels and books of poetry. Nevertheless, this album contains covers from a wide range of artists, from John Lee Hooker to Lou Reed to Jimmy Webb to Johnny Cash, who returned the favor shortly before his death by recording Cave's The Mercy Seat. This version of Long Black Veil features all the hallmarks of what makes the Bad Seeds great. Cave's dramatic vocal delivery, an overall foreboding and edgy mood, and a great band able and willing to respectfully and skillfully stretch the boundaries of conventional styles. She wants these hills in a long black veil. She visits my grave when the night winds wail.
As you may know by now, I try to have the background music on this podcast somehow relate to each episode. And in case you were wondering what the music in the background has been all through this episode, well, it's in fact been the soundtrack to the 2007 film The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, a western starring Brad Pitt and Casey Affleck. The soundtrack to the movie was composed by the guy we just heard, Nick Cave, along with fellow Australian Warren Ellis, the innovative multi-instrumentalist who has been his bandmate in The Bad Seed since 1995, as well as a member of the instrumental trio The Dirty Three, a band that's hard to define, but you know them when you hear them. This was Cave and Ellis's second film score, and they've done several more since then. Not a bad day job. Where is that sound coming from? This episode of the Where's That Sound Coming From podcast is rather special, it turns out, because it's the first, I think, to include recordings by the two guys whose choice of cover songs throughout their respective careers was what planted the seed which grew into the concept for this podcast. More often than not, their choice of cover songs has inspired me to seek out the original, if I didn't already know it, research the original version, and then seek out other versions. Now, we've already heard from one of the two men, Jerry Garcia, and now we'll hear from the other, a guy named Michael Nesmith. Nesmith's version of Long Black Veil has never officially been released and only appears on a couple of bootleg recordings from his 1992 tour supporting the release of an album called The Older Stuff, a Rhino Records compilation of his post-monkey solo work recorded while he was on RCA Records from 1970 to 1974. One might say that this was his most productive and creative period, musically that is, during which he released six albums of mostly original material, and of course a few choice covers, in under four years. And yet, the albums barely sold. Anyway, in 1992, Nez toured for the first time in about 15 years, taking along a band that consisted of Billy Joe Walker Jr. on guitar, Joe Chimay on bass, John Hobbs on keyboards, and Luis Conte on percussion. On this all-acoustic tour of mid-sized clubs, he dusted off many of his greatest tunes like Different Drum and Grand On Wee, but also included a few favorite covers like Cole Porter's Begin the Begin and, of course, Long Black Veil. I was going to get on Nez's case for referring to this song in the intro as an old traditional. Come on, Nez, you were alive when it was first released. But someone must have said something because in the other recording that I've heard of him doing this later on in the tour, he actually mentions having mistakenly referred to it as a traditional and corrects himself. In any case, this version does feature an interesting instrumental bridge between the verses that I've not heard anywhere else before or since, which begs the question, who was that other guitar player who taught it to him that way? The next song is an old traditional tune I learned sitting knees to knees with a guitar player. The way he taught it to me is not like any record that I've ever heard of it, but that's okay, that's kind of the way it is with these traditional songs. Truman Capote said that into all great art there is a little murder. This song contains a little murder and also a, a bizarre sense of fidelity. at least strange, one of my favorite tunes, influential, 
Okay, and now, remember that young folky who earlier apologized to his audience for doing Long Black Veil because it was a fairly contemporary song? Well, here he is returning to that song 30 years and five lifetimes later. It's Jerry Garcia, recorded in 1993 during what was probably his last stretch of good health before his death in 1995. This comes from a release called The Pizza Tapes, due to the fact that the original reels of tape were reportedly stolen and bootlegged by a pizza delivery man before being bought back by Garcia's people. Or maybe this was an elaborate story concocted to sell records. Whatever the truth, the whole album is very much worth hearing. The sessions were recorded at the home studio of legendary mandolin player David Grisman, with whom Garcia had played in the well-known but short-lived bluegrass band Old and in the Way in 1973, and with whom he reunited in 1990. During the last five years of Garcia's life, he collaborated with Grisman as often as he could, both on stage and on record, displaying a joy for playing that was becoming increasingly rare in his performances with the Grateful Dead and even the Jerry Garcia band. Indeed, this has led many to believe that if he could have left the money-making dead behind at this point, he quite possibly would have. Besides Garcia and Grisman, the Pizza Tapes also features the highly respected bluegrass guitarist Tony Rice, whom Garcia had never met before, let alone played with. But Grisman knew and admired both guys and thought it'd be a hoot if he could get them together and record the results. There's a lot of shared musical heritage between the three guys, and they sound like they could have played for a month straight and never repeated a song. Garcia's playing is lovely, but by 1993 was less nimble, while every Rice solo is virtuosic. In fact, at one point, while Rice is warming up with scales played at lightning speed, Garcia half-jokes, stop that right now. Garcia's real instrument on this collection is his voice, which, at this point in his life, and in this intimate setting, is emotional, soulful, worn from decades of all kinds of smoke as well as thousands and thousands of gigs. And yet his speaking voice, as always, is youthful, full of enthusiasm and joy. You'll hear all of this now. Okay, David. It's up to you. <laughs> Can't be done. Me no here. Somewhere 
done I spoke not a word Though it made my life I had been in the arms Of my best friend's wife She walks these hills In a long black face Visits my grave When the night winds wave Nobody knows Nobody sees Nobody was fun guys god damn i'm enjoying this where is that sound coming from so next we have irish legends and purveyors of the traditional music of their homeland the chieftains in 1995 they released an album with the title long black veil which proved to be a gigantic worldwide hit largely owing to the fact that it featured collaborations with such artists as the rolling stones 
Van Morrison, Sting, Sinead O'Connor, and here she is again, Marianne Faithful. However, the title track is a collaboration with Faithful's ex, a guy named Mick Jagger. Given the nature of most of Mick's lyrics throughout his career, he probably felt pretty comfortable inhabiting the character telling this tale. Though it rubbed some Stones fans the wrong way, I personally find this to be quite a lovely version. Okay, it is kind of funny at first to hear Mick Jagger backed by the Chieftains, but eventually you get used to it and it's cool. Nobody knows 
Okay, I really should start wrapping this up. At this point, I was going to include a bootleg recording of Bob Dylan doing Long Black Veil at a 1997 concert, one of only five times he's performed it, once in 1997 and four times in 2000, according to BobDylan.com. But the audience recording and the plodding speed he and his band play it at just makes it a tough listen that I won't subject you to. You can probably find it on YouTube if you want. Sorry, Bob, but you deserve better representation than that. So, onwards. Yeah, you really want to hear it? Jesus, I guess I need to know my audience better. Grade school aged Bob Dylan freaks, apparently. Okay, I'll give you a sample, then quickly move on. that wasn't as bad as I'd remembered, but still it's seven minutes and this episode is already running long, so we move on. In 2009, Roseanne Cash, daughter of Johnny Cash and his first wife Vivian, released an album of traditional country and folk covers called The List, and there's a cool story attached to that title. It refers to an actual list that her dad made for her when she was 18 of what he considered to be a hundred essential songs that she needed to be familiar with to truly understand country music. Long Black Veil was on Johnny's list, which Roseanne trimmed down to a manageable 12 songs for her album. She invited various contemporary artists to record with her, and for Long Black Veil, she has Jeff Tweedy from Wilco, strumming and singing harmony. Ten years ago On a cold, dark night There was someone killed Neath the town hall light There were few at the scene But they all did agree That the slayer who ran Looked a lot like me Judge said, son, what is your alibi? If you were somewhere else, then you won't have to die. I spoke not a word, though it meant my life. For I'd been in the arms of my best friend. 
friend's wife She walks these hills In a long black veil She visits my grave When the night winds wail Nobody knows Nobody sees out this show will rightly leave the final word to Roseanne's dad, Johnny Cash, who is here to make sure that Jerry Garcia wasn't the only one who got to double dip during this episode. The final decade of Johnny Cash's life from 1993 to 2003 was also one of his most celebrated, critically acclaimed, and commercially successful. Thanks to producer Rick Rubin, who prior to working with Cash was mostly known for his punk, metal, and hip-hop productions, Johnny Cash ended his career playing music as pure and poignant as the music that initially made him a hero in the 50s and 60s. Between 1994 and 2002, Rubin produced four excellent Johnny Cash albums, American Recordings, Unchained, Solitary Man, and The Man Comes Around, which featured a mix of old traditionals as well as stripped-down arrangements of songs by unlikely contemporary artists like Nick Cave, Soundgarden, Beck, and U2. Though his health was declining, Cash never lost focus on the music, and his power came across even on his frailer-sounding performances. Those final ten years and the quality product that was released ensured that Johnny would go out the way he came in. A man of conviction and taste, a man of God whose lifetime of sin was written all over his face, and with a voice that could go from cold and intimidating to warm and good-humored within the same song. The 70s and 80s had been filled with See What Sticks type records, and he had lost a good portion of his fan base as well as the respect of many in the record industry. But for his final decade on this earth, the man came around indeed. Shortly after his death, a stunning five-CD box set entitled Unearthed, filled with outtakes from his four final albums, was released. 
and the set begins with this chilling version of a song that he had initially recorded in 1965, Long Black Veil. A perfect way to end this episode. Ten years ago, on a cold, dark night, someone was killed neath the town hall lights. There were few at the scene, but they all agreed that the slayer who ran looked a lot like me. Now she walks these hills in a long black veil. She visits my grave when the night winds wave. Nobody knows, nobody sees, nobody knows but me. The scaffold was high and eternity near. She stood in a crowd and shed not a tear. But sometimes at night, when the cold wind moans in a long black veil, she cries o'er my bones. She walks these hills in a long black veil. She visits my grave when the night winds wave. Nobody knows, nobody sees, nobody knows but me. The judge said, son, what is your alibi? If you were somewhere else, then you won't have to die. I spoke not a word, though it meant my life. I'd been in the arms of my best friend's wife. She walks these hills in a long black veil. She visits my grave when the night winds wave. Nobody knows, nobody sees, nobody knows but me. Nobody knows, nobody sees, nobody knows but me. Where is that sound coming from? Okay, folks, that wraps up episode number 21 of the Where's That Sound Coming From podcast. My name is Brian. Thanks so much for listening, and I feel like I might be in the groove again, so hopefully it won't be ages and ages until the next episode. I do have several lined up uh, that I just need to record, so I will see you soon, and I think that's a promise. 
that we could do? Shit, I'm having a great time, man. This is like. I tell you, Tony, it's a fucking pleasure playing with you, man. Likewise, likewise.